millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us on a new criminal case. During the summer of 1968, the town of Newcastle was haunted by a terrible event. Two little boys, Martin Brown and Brian Howey, were found strangled to death in a vacant lot within a few weeks of each other. The double homicide, its cruel nature, and the disturbing circumstances under which it had been committed galvanized all of England at the time, when the identity of the man, or rather the woman who committed these murders, was finally revealed, a wave of shock gripped the whole country. The killer was named Mary Bell. She was only 11 years old and had the face of an angel. For decades, Mary Bell would come to be considered as the very embodiment of evil, a strange, vicious and frightening child who was the representative of humanity at its most vile and cruel. But who was she really? Today's criminal case will address the very taboo subject of child killers and take us back in time to get a better understanding of Mary Bell's case in context. Warning, this case deals with topics such as physical torture as well as the mistreatment and prostitution of children. It is therefore recommended for a mature audience. The objective here is to objectively report the events as faithfully as possible and in the way they occurred. Please note that this case is not for the faint-hearted. Newcastle-upon-Tyne, or simply Newcastle, is one of those cities in northern England where it's often grayer and gloomier than anywhere else. In the late 1960s, the town and its outskirts brought together several working-class cities. The houses were all aligned, sometimes with adjoining courtyards like Spanish patios, but without the charm or warmth. Here, the concept of privacy didn't exist. The thin walls allowed neighbors to hear each other's family arguments, screams, raised voices, radios blaring, and the sound of washing machines spinning. More importantly at the time, Newcastle also held the unfortunate record for having the highest rates of criminality and delinquency, unemployment and alcoholism in all of Great Britain, just behind Glasgow in Scotland. Ever since the coal mines and shipyards, which normally employed most of the men, had closed one after another, all these newly unemployed workers who were previously the sole breadwinners of their families now preferred to drown their sorrows and their frustrations in alcohol. Far from being a mere cultural tradition, alcoholism in Great Britain in the 1960s was tolerated and even practically legitimized and given the socio-economic conditions. In one of the ever-crowded pubs, a poor gentleman who had just lost his job could knock back a few beers to start with and then continue drinking another two or three rounds. In the same pub, he could find a comforting shoulder to cry on and an attentive ear to listen to him without judgment. When the bar closed, he would stumble home, sometimes by himself or sometimes in a gang, singing very loudly or cursing his wife and his bosses. Here, drinking began at a very early age, usually around 14 or 15 years old. The legal age for drinking was considered a matter of concern only for the rich or for the self-righteous dietitians. In some families, children were even given a bit of beer mixed with milk in order to get them used to it, and no one was shocked by the practice. 
As one might imagine, living in Newcastle in the 1960s was nothing to be excited or happy about. But as miserable as these working-class cities, with their red brick houses and blackened chimneys could be, there were always others elsewhere who were even more miserable, whether it was in Leeds, Manchester or Liverpool. Indeed, there was a place that encapsulated all of this economic, social, moral and geographic misery, and that was Cotswood. Residents of Newcastle, rich and poor alike, mockingly named it Rat Alley. Great Squalor ruled over this no-man's land. Previously, it had been a working-class city like many others in the area, but now it was no more than an empty wasteland filled with vandalized houses and walls that had been eaten by vermin or destroyed by mold. Yet many families continued to live there in overcrowded homes despite the deplorable sanitary conditions. To save space, families shared clothed lines, the doors to their homes were rarely closed and from the kitchen windows, one could hear the sounds of a radio or the voice of the lady of the house singing a Beatles song. The rest of the household chores were usually done outside. Laundry, knitting, sewing, etc. The same was true for meals. They were all eaten outdoors on the family's front doorstep, whether it was the first cup of tea or the first cigarette in the morning. The cone of fries with vinegar for lunch or for a second cup of tea at 4 p.m. while chatting with the next-door neighbor. The neighborhood, which was so lively and filled with the sounds of children and housewives during the day, became very quiet at around 6 p.m. because that was when everyone had high tea, an evening meal popular with workers during that era. It usually consisted of a main course of sandwich and tea. On the weekends, many girls from the neighborhood went to the movies or to the dance hall together. They would take the bus or the train to Manor's where they would meet up with their fiancés. At the end of the evening, the boys would buy the girls fries and beer and take them off to a secluded place for some kissing. And where were the children when all of this was going on? In Scotswood, as soon as they could walk, they were left on their own. They'd often join their brothers and sisters and their friends with the eldest children, taking the youngest by the hand or pushing them in strollers. This was what life was like until the day the police discovered Martin Brown's lifeless body inside an abandoned house in the area. Martin was only four years old when his life abruptly ended on May 25, 1968, just as the first rays of sunlight had barely displaced the doom and gloom. Never in living memory had Scottswood ever known such a significant police presence. Investigators began questioning all the adults as well as the children. For more than a week, security guards kept watch during the night while the residents looked out their window fearing that the killer would show up at any minute at the end of an alley. But what did the killer look like? Did he look like the White Chapel Ripper? Betty McCricket was also by her window. She was 28 years old, but she seemed much older. Her voice was hoarse as a result of smoking, her complexion was withered, and she had begun to lose so much hair that it haunted her. She feared waking up one morning to see herself bald as she stood before the mirror. She had dyed her hair blonde with peroxide to look like Marilyn Monroe so many times that she now had hair loss and was forced to wear a wig that matched her hair color. She, however, still kept her eyebrows dark and lengthened them with a pencil just up until where her years began. The rest of her appearances bore traces of someone who had been beautiful in her early 20s before life took its toll and made her look twice her age. It also doubled her chin and the bags under her eyes. Betty was anything but a happy woman. She hated her first name of Elizabeth and even occasionally called herself Sarah or Antonia around people who didn't know her. Her mother had been the one to give her baby the name Mary Flora, a name that was much beloved by Scottish women like herself. 
She was named Mary after Queen Mary Stuart and Flora, the first wife of national warrior William Wallace. Betty never had any maternal instincts, nor did she develop even the slightest bit of love for this little girl whom she wanted to get rid of right from the very beginning. When she considered having an abortion, her Catholic family, which included a mother and several sisters, frowned in disapproval and angrily voiced their opinion on the subject. An abortion? Don't even think about it. It's a major sin, a crime more than loathsome than anything else. In those days, being a single mother was looked down upon and many of them were punished by their families and sometimes even by the law as a result. Betty's family, however, broke with tradition and supported her because her mother and her sister were loving people who took pity on her. During her pregnancy, the young woman's heart was filled with hate. Consequently, she never established the instinctive bond that usually developed between an unborn child and her mother during the first few months of pregnancy. Only a few minutes after she had given birth to little Mary on May 26, 1957, her mother barely even looked at her child. As the smiling nurse held the child before her in a pink blanket, she merely said, Get that thing away from me. A short time later, the young Scottish girl met a man named William Bell, also known as Billy, who was a habitual criminal and an alcoholic. Bell was known to have sown some wild oats and had been in prison several times in the past. They married only two weeks after they first met. Now that the mother had settled down and the baby finally had a father, everyone would be happy. The new family then moved to 70 White House Road in Newcastle, among other working-class families. Tension arose very quickly in Betty and Bill's marriage. Betty was a fickle woman who occasionally worked as a prostitute and her husband often hit her. And so she spent long periods in Glasgow to recuperate while leaving her little daughter alone in the care of her stepfather. Eventually, the couple separated. Betty and Mary then moved to the decaying neighbor of Scottswood in 1966, where the rents were cheaper. Mary was a pretty girl with brown hair and extremely bright blue eyes. Her emerging beauty made an impact on everyone who met her. As a lonely child who was often left to fend for herself, she soon learned not to depend on anyone but herself and developed a thick skin. Sometimes her grandmother, Isla McCricket, would come to visit them. Those were the happiest days of her life. Mary adored her Scottish grandmother and her thick accent. She always had candies in her purse and would sometimes give the child a shilling or two to buy herself some fries or soda. Now that Betty was free of any marital obligations, she came and went as she pleased and returned home at all hours of the night if she came home at all. More than once, her child spent the night alone without having anything to eat during the entire day. One autumn morning, as she was playing on her front doorstep, Mary spotted a little blonde girl who appeared to be the same age as her or perhaps a little older. She lived in the house across the street. Her family had just moved in. Mary was the only one to make the first move and introduce herself as she held out her hand solemnly. She discovered that the girl was named Norma Bell. What a coincidence. We're related then? No, I don't think so. I'm from Cardiff. Norma said shyly and she blushed. Where's that? In Wales. Norma came from a family of 11 children. Her parents were Welsh and her father was an unemployed worker. No sooner had the two girls gotten to know each other than she was literally thrown into the gaggles of siblings who immediately adopted her. Unlike Betty, Norma's mother was a cheerful, plump woman with curlers on her head wrapped in a bright pink scarf. Her loud and easy laughter filled the kitchen like thunder. She always had a cigarette dangling from her mouth and the ashes sometimes fell onto her polka dot apron. 
Mary always saw her from behind, leaning over the counter, busily preparing snacks for the older ones who went off to work, reheating breakfast for those who stayed at home, doing the laundry or making cakes and jams. In the kitchen, the radio was always on, drowned out by the chattering of the youngest children. Mary had never seen her mother make anything to eat, even when her father still lived with them. It was always cones of fries with vinegar, fish and chips eaten directly from the greasy newspaper or sometimes cans of soup that only needed to be heated. In the fridge, there was nothing but beer and in the cupboard, only tea, condensed milk and sugar. Mr. Bell was the complete opposite of his wife. He was a thin man who was quiet and not very talkative. He only opened his mouth to reprimand one of his sons who misbehaved at the dinner table or to ask them to bring him his cigarettes. In his rare moments of anger, he would fold his newspaper and hit his children to keep them quiet. On occasion, his wife would scold him and berate him for drinking like a fish and spending all their money. The bells usually fought in front of their children and visitors, but these were only quarrels that never became hostile. Moments later, they had already made up and could be seen kissing each other. Going to the bells' house every day, Mary began to experience a feeling she hadn't known before, love. That kind that was expressed and that was not shamefully hidden. Norma was able to ask for a hug from her mother whenever she wanted and she would wrap her arms around her and snuggle her blonde head in her apron. Although Mr. Bell was quite modest, he would often take his wife into his arms, lift the youngest one up in the air and affectionately pat their heads and Norma's too. Mary was a bit jealous of Norma for that reason. If she ever got the urge to do the same thing with her own mother, she knew right away that she would tearlessly reject her with a discouraging wave of hand. In any case, she'd never tried for fear of Betty spurning her. Over the course of weeks and months, Norma Bell's family became a kind of substitute family for little Mary, the lonely, unloved and lost child. She stayed at their house the whole day chatting with Mama, lighting Mr. Bell's cigarettes, going up to Norma's room and grabbing the dolls lined up on the bed. She would then take the dolls and try to give them new hairstyles. Older Norma was much too shy to tell her to stop and even though she was upset at seeing her toys being mistreated, she let Mary continue and merely told her timidly, please be careful with her hat, Mary. At around 8 p.m., Mrs. Bell took Mary aside and gently asked her, sweetie, is it not that you're bothering us, but your mother must be worried about you? It's time to go home. Mary kissed Norma and went back home reluctantly. She soon took the lead with her friend. She was the one who decided what game they would play, where they would go and when. Norma merely followed her without a fight even though she was the older of the two. Mary soon felt that there was something different about her but didn't dare to approach the issue directly. It wasn't until one of her neighborhood children called her a mentally defective and mongoloid that Mary started to understand what made Norma different from other children is Cotswood. At the Bell's house, the subject was considered taboo and never discussed. Norma may well have had a mental disability. However, her parents treated her exactly like her brothers and sisters and refused to make her feel any different. In those days, children with mental illness did not receive any support and society belittled them and occasionally so did their own families. One evening, Mary asked Mrs. Bell if she could spend the night at their house. Mama went to Glasgow to do some business. I don't know when she'll be coming back. She didn't say anything to me as she was leaving. In the neighborhood, rumors began to circulate about Elizabeth McCricket and her dubious trips to Scotland. However, everyone knew that she worked as a prostitute and she had since made it her full-time job. This poor child, poor Mary, who had to suffer such a fate, 
lamented about the neighbors and mothers whose families had all their fathers and sons at home with them. As soon as she returned from Glasgow, Betty would violently start beating Mary. The blows would rain down on her without any provocation. It was as if the very slight of her daughter bothered her and kept her from breathing. During one of their many arguments, Betty had even tried to drown her in the bathtub. Maternal violence no longer had any limits. It could happen at any time and for any reason. Eventually, Mary even started to be able to anticipate each meltdown. Her mother's eyes would grow cold, fixed, and narrow. Unable to defend herself, she would take the blows without flinching. Whenever she would go to school with a black eye or with bruises on her face, no one bothered to ask how she had got them. This was the 1960s and child abuse was not discussed like how it is now. How could she make it stop? She could try to run away, but where and how? Betty didn't like the fact that she took refuge in Norma's family. You've got a roof over your head, don't you, you lousy brat? Why do you want to go to their house who have more children than all of Scottwood's combined? I'm telling you, you'll end up getting raped by one of their sons. Mary thought about going to her grandmother Isla's house, which she adored, but it costed money to buy a train ticket to go to Birmingham, where she lived. Maybe she could steal it. This was the time when the tension reached its highest, but it was also the time when Betty McCricket started to plot a diabolical plan. While everyone knew that she worked as a prostitute, no one knew, however, that she was a sadomasochist. She would tie up her clients to strangle or whip them. One day, she asked if Mary wanted to go with her to visit a gentleman that she knew. The little girl, thinking that this was an invitation, brushed her hair and put on a pretty dress and shined her black shoe that her grandmother gave her. Mother and daughter boarded a train for manners. At the station, a man was in a car waiting for them. They went to a small apartment. Mary was brought into the room. She took part in the adult's antiques and then joined in on tying up the gentleman. She watched her mother grab an enormous whip and started to beat the man's buttocks back and arm. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. She was shocked to see him take the blows without trying to defend himself. He was such a big brute, he could have torn Betty to pieces if he wanted to. But he allowed her to continue and even seemed to like it. The worst was still yet to come. The two adults grabbed the child, moved her onto the bed, and began fondling her. Mary didn't understand at first. She thought it was a game, but when the caress became strange, she sensed that something was wrong. This wasn't how Norma's parents kissed, and it wasn't how Grandma Isla caressed her legs and arms either. The man brought mother and daughter back into the train station. He brought Mary some ice cream, kissed Betty on the neck, and he left. For the entire trip home, Mary, who usually desperately tried to catch her mother's eyes, avoided looking at her altogether. 
As soon as they got home, she went upstairs and locked herself in the room. Downstairs, the door closed once more. Betty left once again. The traumatic experience was repeated several times. Once her mother and her client at the time both grabbed a cord and began to strangle her with it. Mary, frozen and pale as a mummy, was unable to move at all. She heard their ruckus and mocking laughter. She smelt the man's alcohol-filled breath on her mouth. Distraught, she wet the bed. The man flew into a psychotic rage and slapped Betty with such violence that she fell onto the ground. When they returned home, her mother unleashed her fury on her and struck her so hard that she lost consciousness. When she awoke, her dress was still wet with urine and her head was heavy and full of bruises. At just 10 years old, Mary followed in her mother's footsteps and also began working as a prostitute. She developed such a reputation that everyone in Scotswood knew about her. She didn't know how her mother found out, but now, as soon as she got back home, her mother demanded the money she earned from her services. Despite this rather unhealthy and particularly sordid situation, Mary and Norma continued to hang out together. At 13 years old, Norma Bell had the innocence of a five-year-old, while Mary seemed like she was older and more experienced of the two. However, she noticed that she was no longer welcome at the Bell's house. Norma's mother no longer made her laugh like she did before and merely left the kitchen when she came over for tea. Mr. Bell found work again and no longer spent his days at home. In Norma's bedroom, Mary grabbed one of the dolls, removed her dress and stockings, and slid her finger into the hole that was meant to serve as her rubber genitals. Norma's eyes grew wide with wonder and worry as she watched Mary continue to shove her finger inside and smiled strangely. That's what my mom's friends do, she said. Although it was unclear how Norma's mother found out about this little game that Mary was playing in front of her daughter and forbid her from setting foot in their house. Now having lost the only friend she had, little Mary Bell's world was crumbling around her. She continued to prostitute herself and charge for her services like a professional. Once a man told her something that she didn't quite understand. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Although Mary had been kicked out of the Bell's home, nevertheless she continued to see Norma secretly, often while school let out. Whenever they had a bit of money, they would buy a bottle of cherry soda and share it as they walked. As they passed the van that sold fish and chips, where housewives and curlers waited in line, they were spotted by a group of little boys who started to follow them as they shouted. The moron and the monster are off to turn tricks. Ha <laughs> ha! Norma didn't understand the words, but Mary knew only too well what they were saying. She picked up a rock and threw it at the kids who ran away as they laughed mischievously. Mary halted at the little boys in the neighborhood. She fantasized about punching them and biting them until they bled because they spent their time repeating what adults were saying, that her mother was a whore and a tramp that was filled of diseases and that she'd better find a husband instead of shoving her ass in Glasgow. As complicated and vile as their relationship often was, Mary had always taken her mother's side and always defended her tooth and nail, possibly expecting some show of love after displaying such heroism, but Betty was never grateful. Among the children, only little Martin Brown, who was four, got along with Mary. He was just a little kid with blonde hair who spent his days frolicking everywhere as his mother or one of his sisters watched over him from the kitchen window. The other bigger children took him under their wings in case a fight broke out and hit him to make sure he didn't get hit accidentally. Mary cherished him and a great deal and also protected him. Whenever Martin held out his hand to her to help him climb a step, she felt a twinge of affection run through her whole body. Such an innocent gesture moved her to tears. 
On May 25, 1968, Mary woke up in a great mood. Tomorrow was to be her 11th birthday. When she went down to the kitchen, she was shocked to find her mother already fully dressed with her peroxide hair and big pink curlers about to make tea. Mary noticed that there were two cards on the table as well as a small package wrapped in brown paper. Grandma Isla and Billy remembered your birthday, said Betty mockingly. Ashamed to allow her happiness to show in front of her mother, Mary grabbed her presents. Grandma's card was pink and when she opened it, a ballerina emerged and she began to turn as classical music played. How delightful it was! Papa's card was not quite as charming. It showed four pink legs of lamb and a big wearing overalls who proclaimed with a smile. Fry and Lewis Butchers wish you a happy new year for 1968. The very idea of sending a New Year's card from the butcher's where he works for his daughter's birthday, said Betty mockingly, your father always was a complete idiot. Mary couldn't help but hold the two letters to her heart. Her mother looked at her contemptuously. Mary didn't dare to ask what she had brought her as she never gave her anything for her birthday. It was as if she wanted to wipe the date from her memory. Betty grabbed her purse, took out a bill and handed it to Mary. Don't smile, it's not for you. I need you to go buy something for me from the grocery store and bring me back the change. Understand? Mary choked back a sob. Usually her mother hit her, beat her, brought her to her clients to be raped and rejected her, but it never made her cry. She'd build up a shell to protect herself, but these simple words devastated her more than anything had before. On that particular morning, she sent me to buy a brush. When I got at the store, I didn't know if I wanted a hairbrush or just a brush, period. But I was too afraid to go back home to ask her, so I told myself that she probably wanted a push broom, and that's what I came home with. She took off the handle and started beating me with it. I called her a whore and punched her in the stomach. She hit me back and continued as I leaped down the stairs and ran away. There was a loud argument when she returned home. Not only had she failed to get back the change, but she had even brought back the wrong item. Betty's anger burst like thunder and she began beating Mary, first with the broom handle and then just with her fists. Short of breath, she threw her against a wall, dragged her by her hair and tried to smash her skull. Mary fought back and responded with violence that surprised her. It was the first time that she had dared to stand up against a woman who had tormented her. The first time that she had dared to strike her. The fight continued on the stairs. Terrified, Mary bounded down the stairs, followed by the shrew who had lost her curlers and one of her slippers in the heat of the moment. In the last attempt, Betty threw the handle at Mary, but her daughter dodged it, opened the front door and ran into the street. Her chest was so wrecked with sobs that she had to stop to catch her breath. Overcome with self-pity, she fell to her knees and began to cry heavily. She barely noticed the little hand that had come to her brush away from her bangs. Through her tears, Mary saw the face of little Martin Brown with his pink cheeks and his blonde curls. Don't cry, Mary, I love you. She took his hands and pressed it tightly into hers. They walked straight into the edge of Scott's wood. Tomorrow would be her birthday and perhaps Mama would change her mind and bake her a cake. The body of little Martin Brown as well as that of Brian Howie, another child from the neighborhood, were discovered in July 1968. For this second murder, Mary had been hanging down with her friend Norma. According to the police, the two little girls went back to the scene of the crime the next day to engrave the letter N on the victim's abdomen with the razor blade, an N to which they had added a line to make it an M as an N for Norma and M for Mary. With a pair of scissors, Mary cut locks of hair from the victim and even slashed his penis. 
The two little girls were arrested a few days later and subjected to a lengthy interrogation. They eventually confessed to the murder of Brian Howie, but not to that of little Martin Brown. Norma was completely beside herself and cried nonstop, but Mary displayed an almost frightening stoicism. This almost indifferent and calculated attitude only strengthened their suspicion about her. While the murders of the two little boys rocked England, their arrest was even more shocking. No one ever would have believed that the two young children, especially girls, could have been capable of such cruelty and hatred. On December 5, 1968, Mary and Norma Bell's trial opened at the public prosecutor's office for Newcastle. The room was so crowded that no one could move a muscle. Everyone wanted to take part in the trial of the two monsters of Scotswood, as the press and the tabloids had dubbed them. I saw Mary for the first time on December 5, 1968, in the courtroom in Newcastle. She and her friend Norma were on trial for killing the two little boys. Mary, very young at the time, much younger than the other little girl and very pretty. It just so happened that during the investigation, messages had been exchanged between Mary and Norma that caught the attention of their teacher. Mary had apparently even identified Martin Brown on a notebook that was later put into evidence. When she was questioned by the police, Mary got their attention when she referred to a pair of scissors found at Brian Howie's crime scene. Yet none of the police officers had ever mentioned the weapon in front of her, so she ended up revealing her own guilt. A few days later after Brian Havy's murder, and out of fear of being arrested, the two little girls planned to flee to Scotland, where according to them, they would live with their horses, eat carrots, and dig underground tunnels to hide from the police. In 1968, those who were over the age of 10 were considered adults in England, and so Mary and her accomplice, who were 11 and 13, were not exempt. Since this was a very serious crime, it followed all the normal procedures with judges, police, and the courts. At the center of it all were these two wide-eyed little girls. The whole thing was inappropriate. There was no way that this was going to be a fair trial, recalled a UK child's right advocate recently. The family of the two accused were also in the courtroom. Norma's parents and grandparents were there as well as all the ten of their brothers and sisters. Her family took up an entire two rows and rallied around their daughter, holding their hand and consoling her. Mary had no one to support her, no one to hold her hand, and no one to comfort her. Behind her sat her father, Billy, a bit drunk, and then too much further away was Betty, the unfit mother who remained silent, wearing her ever-present blonde wig and hiding her eyes under huge dark sunglasses. Betty didn't take her daughter's hand, nor did she cry any tears when reporters started directing their questions her way. As soon as they left, she began pinching Mary's arm with her long fingernails and nudging her in the ribs. I knew right then if I were to go home that she, her mother, would probably kill me. The differences between the two defendants soon became clear over the course of the hearing. Mary Bell was crafty, intelligent, and answered all questions in a way that was very exact. Norma, on the other hand, seemed to have completely fallen apart and terrified of being such a place in front of these old bewig judges who never smiled at her. As predicted, this strategy allowed the court to quickly determine that the one who was intelligent had to be the guilty party and the one who was not must be innocent. In the 1960s, judgments were not extensive and rather prompt. Furthermore, no one was particularly concerned about a defendant's pedigree, their family environment, or their personality or any of the events that drove them to commit their crime. The police, just like the judges, only wanted to stick to the fact. 
With respect to the murder of Martin Brown, Mary was in complete denial. She claimed that she remembered nothing. As for the second crime, it was difficult to determine which of the two girls had killed the boy and thus the court concluded that Mary was likely to be the perpetrator and that Norma had only helped her. Over the following days, the atmosphere in the courtroom had changed. Everyone now believed that it was no longer a trial of two defendants, but really just one, in this case, Mary. The prosecutor held the same position and that child trafficking was abnormal, vicious, cruel and slightly diabolical. One of the psychiatrists added that it was a freak of nature and a monster. Throughout the trial, only Kitta Sereny, a celebrated Austrian author who wrote about children, had any pity for Mary Bell. In her opinion, if the little girl had committed a cold-blooded crime, then it was because something quite serious had happened in her life. But while everyone else saw her as the embodiment of evil, the author was the only one to see a glimpse of an anguish hidden behind her stoic face. In that adult courtroom filled with people, all I could see was this troubled child who had been forced to live through some terrible things. Her appearance, her attitude and her behavior all sadly reminded me of the children from the camps in Dachau in 1945 when I was there with the U.S. Army. On Tuesday, December 17, 1968, Norma was found not guilty and was acquitted. Mary, however, was sentenced to life in prison for murder in the second degree. The child Mary Bell may now be taken away, said the prosecutor to bring the hearing to a close. Mary remained behind bars between the age 11 and 23, and during the 12 years that she spent incarcerated, she was still in her complete denial. One of her teachers would go on to say that there is something missing within her, a void that no one or anything could fill. At the age of 15, she was transferred to a detention center for minors in Lancashire. In 1979, she attempted to escape from her cell in Moore Court after having bribed a guard. As a result, she was placed in solitary confinement. In prison, Mary was regularly visited by her mother, Betty. In fact, she was the only one who came to visit her. After every one of her mother's visits, the young girl became aggressive, vicious and vulgar and would violently attack the other inmates. Once her outburst was over, she would break down and cry as she talked about her mother. She used to come up once or twice a month. She would always tell me that I was bad. There she was, Catholic through and through with her saints here and saints there and sin, sin, sin. But you know who she was. But now all that is over, she has now become respectable. During her trial, Mary found out that her mother had offered to allow the tabloid The Sun to cover the event, and she also sold photos of herself and her daughter to other scandalous newspapers. Betty's sadistic nature didn't stop there. She even wrote fake poems and letters and tried to pass herself off as her daughter. This cruel charade was a way of her to make money and live without having to work for a short time. After she had just been transferred to her new prison in Moore Court, Mary learned that William Bell, whom she believed was her father, was in fact not. As she bombarded her mother with questions about the real identity of her father, her mother merely answered by saying, You're the child of evil. After spending 11 years behind bars, Mary Bell applied for parole and wrote a letter to the judge. While waiting for an answer, she tried to commit suicide. I'm locked up and I've never experienced anything in life. I don't even know what the other girls are talking about when they get here because I've never been anywhere or done anything. Maybe you don't think I deserve to be free, but I don't want to spend the rest of my life in prison. In 1980, at the age 23, Mary was finally released. The happiness was only to be short-lived. Since she went to prison as a child and came out as an adult, she knew nothing about the outside world into which she was thrown unprepared. 
Her reintegration into society went badly, very badly. She applied to work in a daycare center but was forbidden to do so. She considered pursuing studies in order to become a teacher, but once again, she was not permitted. She was absolutely not allowed to have any contact with children. The vicious circle continued. This also marked the beginning of years where she wandered about aimlessly without a fixed address, where she slept here and there and survived by doing odd jobs. However, she did find love, although that too was temporary. In 1984, she gave birth to her daughter, the only light in the dark tunnel that was her life. Whatever she tried to do to earn forgiveness, Mary understood that she would forever be excluded from English society. Geddes Sereni eventually reconnected with her in the early 1990s. She wanted to write a book about her. At first, Mary balked the idea and every time they made an appointment, she would cancel. Eventually, however, she would accept the offer. Geddes stated that she would share the royalties once the novel was released. Mary accepted the contract. During the whole process, Geddes allowed Mary to stay with her in her London home. She also made her meals, brought her favorite cigarettes, tucked her into bed like a child, and tried to give her some confidence. She noticed that Mary Bell was quite talkative when it came to her stay in prison, but she neglected to mention her childhood, which remained unknown to everyone. One day, Gide insisted on knowing more about Mary and gave her an ultimatum. First, tell me what you've already said about me, and I'll correct you if you're wrong. To accomplish this task, Gide Sirini would visit Mary's maternal family in Birmingham. She interviewed Mary's grandmother, Isla, and her daughters. They made some terrifying revelations. When Mary was just a year old, her mother tried to give her an overdose of medicine to try to kill her. She made another attempt when the baby was three years old when she tried, unbeknownst to Mary, to slip some pills into her smarties. Her mother even tried to throw her out of the fifth floor window of their first apartment. In June of 1996, the novelist learned about the rapes and maternal incest that Mary endured and immediately made the link with the event that would later follow. I consider myself lucky because they rewarded me with the cone of fries and they gave me a hug. Elizabeth McCricket, Mary's torturer mother, died in December 1994 at the age of 56. Her daughter and granddaughter had spent Christmas with her. Mary would reveal to Geddes Sereni that she heard her mother laugh and saw her in a good mood for the first and last time. Was this the final act of reconciliation that Betty had wanted? In her novel Such a Pretty Little Girl, which was written from interviews with Mary Bell, Geddes Sereni, who had invested herself body and soul into the novel, gave readers the first confession from the person whom the British still considered to be a child of Satan. After much persuading, begging, and sometimes even quarreling, she managed to get the truth from her. Mary finally confessed to the killing of Martin Brown, which had traumatized her the most and which she purged from her memory. In the novelist's living room, with the shades drawn in the court and the room completely dark, Mary recalled that the terrible idea was that she spoke in the present as if she was reliving the scene. I was in the garden in the abandoned house. Martin was there and he was crying. I took his hand and told him to go upstairs. He could have run far away from me, but he didn't. There he was near the corner, standing near the window with his back to the wall. I told him, put your hands around my neck. He did, and then I did the same thing and I squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. At that moment, I told him, I'm not going to hurt you, for real. I never intended to kill him. Interviewed by Kira Sirini in 1996. She would never mention the murder of Brian Howie or talk about Norma Bell. Subconsciously, she had almost convinced herself that the crime never happened. 
1993, a similar case made headlines in England when two young boys kidnapped and murdered little James Burglar, who was three, without any apparent motive. The case would soon come to be known as the Liverpool Child Killers. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 